Hi, everybody. I love that, by the way. That was, uh, I'm glad you said that again, Mary, that uh, create, making us a Genesis week out of the chaos of our life. I love that. That's really cool. Hey, uh, before we get started, um, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. But before we get started, I just wanted to give a, um, a heads up. Uh, on April 24th, uh, we're doing a clean-out day for um, kids' ministry spaces. Uh, really not a clean-out day, but a clean-up day. Um, just want to make sure that uh, the, the, the kids' classrooms are as clean as they could possibly be. So this is kind of like a all-hands-on-deck, um, especially if you uh, plan on putting children in the, uh, in the kids' ministry over the next few months. Uh, we would love to uh, have you come out and support that effort. You can contact Jessica Gore. If you're interested in that, actually, I think there's also like a sign-up sheet, uh, a sign-up link uh, that was in your Inu Hope uh, from last week. So that is that. Um, Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> welcome to the season of Easter. Uh, did you know uh, last week was Easter Sunday, but, but it, it was when we celebrated the, the event of Easter, the event of Jesus' resurrection, but, but now we're, we're going to continue that discussion with a new series, a new season of Easter that'll build on Easter as we talk about the implications of the resurrection. In other words, in light of the resurrection, how now should we live? You know, what's our mindset? If the tomb is really empty, what does that mean for how we live our lives? If the tomb is really empty and Jesus is really alive, what does that mean for how I live uh, my life in the here and now? What does it mean for my career? What does it mean for my family? What does it mean for my kids or my spouse? One of my favorite quotes about Easter is from N.T. Wright. I'm sure you could have guessed that. Uh, he, he says, the, the point of Christianity is not that Jesus has been raised from the dead and therefore we all get to go to heaven when we die. The point of Christianity is that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and therefore God's new creation has begun, and therefore you have a job to do. Friends, we're a little over a year into this pandemic now. The numbers are, are fluctuating. I'm happy to see more and more folks are being vaccinated each day. Um, I'm happy to show my cards on, on that one, by the way. I am a proud recipient, recipient of the uh, vaccine, and I'm, I'm so grateful for the scientists, the medical professionals who've made that possible. Um, we're not out of the woods yet, but, but as it says in James, patience uh, produces endurance, and I believe that we're going to get there. Frankly, I think we should have our mind, though, on future possibilities. Over the coming year, we're essentially going to reboot doing church. Uh, we never stopped being the church, right? We never stopped being the church, of course. We, we didn't stop worship. We didn't stop discipleship. We didn't stop mission. It, it just looked different, and it still will look different for a while. But, but over the coming year, what we're going to do is we're going to start doing church together. We're going to start doing church in person together as, it's a, as it becomes more and more safe for us to do so. I hope you saw in, in your email that I sent out last week regarding the, the kids' ministry plans. Uh, we have a lot of uh, kids in the congregation, praise God, and we want to meet that challenge. We need folks to serve our kids because we want to be a church that is committed to building into the next generation. In the coming months, I'd like us to see us refuel our welcome team. I think that one of the most important words uh, that a church can learn is hospitality. 
So we need folks to step up and help make visitors feel welcome. We want to build into our worship team. We want to build into our student ministry team. And we absolutely want to be doing more to meet the needs of our wider community. I also have something really special um, that I'm thinking that we're, we're planning for summertime. It's, it's, it, it's too soon to give more details on that, but, but more on that soon. I got a really cool idea for that. But anyway, we don't want to move too fast. We don't want to do too much too fast, but we do want to move forward, right? As a pastor, I am unapologetic about a desire to see New Hope Community Church grow deeper and wider, meaning grow deeper in our maturity in Christ as a community, as a family, but also wider in the fact that there's I love our, our congregation to grow. And the reason that I desire that is because I believe that the tomb is empty. On Easter Sunday, Jesus started a resurrection-fueled kingdom of God, new creation movement, and I believe that he is calling New Hope Community Church to participate in that. Before we could talk about implications and mindsets and worldviews and ministry and mission and teamwork, I, I think that we should ask a, a more fundamental question, and that's this. If the tomb is empty, where do I stand with God? Our Lent series was called Rebellion. It was all about how God had created a beautiful world which humanity rebelled against via selfish actions and those selfish actions we call sin. Sin literally means to, to miss the mark. You see, there is a way that we should participate. There's a way that God wants us to participate in His ongoing mission of life. There's a way of being human that God desires for us to walk into the path of sacrificial love, the path and then the commitment of, of peacemaking. When, when we sin, we miss the mark and we wander off the path. Biblically speaking, sin is intimately linked to death and evil. So the story of Good Friday is the story of Jesus going to the cross to declare victory over death, sin, and evil. The story of Easter is the story of, of God raising Jesus from the dead, beginning a work of new creation in Christ in which we are invited to participate. So, okay, if that's the case, where do we go from here? This new series is called More Than Meets the Eye. More Than Meets the Eye. Yeah, it's a Transformers reference. But, and, and what we're going to do is, is focus in on one particular chapter from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we're going to look at Romans 8. Romans 8 is one of those chapters that's been called a desert island chapter. Um, like if you're going to go to a desert island and you can only take one chapter of the Bible, you know, I would want to take some water as well. But anyway, um, if you can only take one chapter of the Bible, Romans 8 would be like the one that a lot of people would take. I also think Matthew 28 that we looked at last week would, would probably be one of the ones that I would take. But anyway, what we're going to do from now to Mother's Day is work through Romans 8. Uh, this week, we're, we're going to look at living life um, in the Holy Spirit, in, 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 with the Holy Spirit at our core. Next week, we're going to talk about <clears throat> the resurrection's implications on, on the wider creation. Next week, is going to be Creation Care Sunday. And then in two weeks, we're going, to go, uh, we're going to be going into how God's Spirit helps us in our weakness. And then after that, I'm excited to invite uh, two very special guests that are going to be here on May 2nd. 
our pastor emeritus, Jason Poling, is going to be here. And then on May 9th, um, we're going to close out the series on Mother's Day by inviting Pat Fossarelli uh, to offer some reflections on the end of Romans chapter 8. And if you haven't ever seen Dr. Uh, Dr. Pat, she is just absolutely amazing. She was one of my professors in, uh, in, in seminary, and um, she's, she's a riot. <laughs> anyway, so I'm looking forward to that. So, Romans chapter 8. And we'll start, because we're going to work our way through the whole chapter, in verse 1. There is therefore, now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son... In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, uh, for it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you who are in Christ, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 11, I love verse 11. Anyway, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So, back to the beginning. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation is the word uh, katakrima, which means basically damnatory sentence. From uh, Greek to Latin to English, (coughs) it's where we get the word damnation. There is no damnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I know it says that there is no condemnation, and we're going to get to the implications of that in a few minutes, but for now, I do want us to talk about why there would be call for condemnation in the first place. It's such a strong scary word. So before we consider our salvation from it, let's first consider why it exists in the first place. 
We could look back to, to Romans uh, 2, where Paul says that uh, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath. There will be fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also for the, the Greek. But there will be glory and honor for everyone who does good. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. One of the large themes of the book of Romans is that God is drawing in a new family in Christ. That one is uh, Jew plus Gentile. But another one of those big themes is that God takes that rebellion very seriously. Rebellion on an individual level and rebellion on a widespread systemic level. He condemns rebellion. And so should we, especially those of us who are in Christ. Words like condemnation, wrath, fury, damnation, those are heavy sorts of words. For me, I hear words like that, and I start to wonder, maybe, maybe other words might be more appropriate, God. No, nobody's perfect, right? Condemnation, that's pretty heavy. What we often forget, though, is that God's wrath is a good thing. Wrath is the necessary action of a loving God who protests the destruction of his creation and the antithesis of his ongoing mission of life. He hates that which defaces his good created order, and because we have taken part in that, he must judge us as well if he's a good God. Here's the hard truth, friends. You want God to be wrathful. If God wasn't defiantly against sin, death, and evil, he would be a bad God. If God ignored sins like racism, sexism, greed, injustice, slavery, jealousy, jealousy, oppression, addiction, destructive violence, if he didn't care about the way those sins affect the people that he loves, he would be a bad God. But as we saw last week, it turns out he cares quite a bit. It grieves God's heart to see us hurt each other. It grieves God's heart to see us devour each other with sin. It grieves God's heart to see us worship the false gods of this world. He cares a whole lot. In fact, the whole point of Good Friday is that he cares so much, he cares to death. He cares, and so should we. See, that's why condemnation is important. The evils of this world are by no means something to sugarcoat or to ignore. Just because Christians are called to Love, joy, and kindness, and hope. That doesn't mean that we're called to see the world through rose-colored glasses. We're called to call out evil where it exists in the world because we follow a God who went to the cross to defeat it. We have every responsibility to participate in God's rescue mission for this world because we ourselves are the first fruits of that new creation in Christ. I like to think of myself as a pretty optimistic person. I confess that I I struggle to have patience with uh, grumpy behavior in others. I I do not suffer the grumpy. I I like to look at the bright side of most situations, and even if the world does get me down for a few hours, usually all it takes is like a Mel Brooks movie or two, and I remember the healing power of laughter and joy. (laughs) 
my son Henry, you know, he has his grumpy moments, and, um, but, but these days, he, he, he's just a pile of goofy laughter. I aspire to be more like Henry when I grow up. I have a responsibility, though, because, still, because I follow a God who is far more concerned with sin than I could ever be, I have a responsibility to acknowledge the world's difficulties and put them into perspective in regards to my role, my place, my power, and also God's role, His place, His power, right? And then take the steps that I need to take in order to follow God's new creation lead. The truth is that it is a dangerous mission. It's a difficult mission, and it's a mission that will leave you unfinished, that you will leave unfinished when you leave this earth. But you can trust that God will see it through the end, see it through to the end. So if we go back to the text and we get personal for a moment, when Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, he obviously doesn't mean that there won't be any mistakes for those who are in Christ. He doesn't mean that there won't be trials and tribulations for those who are in Christ. He doesn't mean that there won't be failure for those who are in Christ. Failure is a part of life. And he also doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for your actions. There won't be consequences for sin for those who are in Christ. When Paul promises no condemnation, he is not promising a rosy future, at least not in the here and now. And he's certainly not promising an existence where we are free to ignore the consequence of our actions. There is no (coughs) condemnation, but as we saw on Good Friday in 2 Corinthians 5, there will be a coming evaluation called the judgment seat of Christ, where we will be held to account for what we did with this life that we were given. Remember, God wants you to make the most of your life. He wants you to embrace abundant life, a life worth living. So when we go off that path, it's not the path of Christ. So then, when Paul says, in light of all that, and that's kind of a downer, but when Paul says there is no condemnation, what exactly is he promising? The author F.B. Meyer once wrote about two German men who wanted to climb the Matterhorn, a a mountain in southern Europe straddling Switzerland and Italy. It's estimated that over 500 people have died attempting to climb this mountain. The men hired three guides, and the five of them, after planning and training, they finally made it to the steepest and most slippery part of this mountain. And the men had roped themselves together in this order, guide, traveler, guide, traveler, guide in order to mix experience with inexperience. And the group had gone only a little way up the side of the mountain when the last man, the man in the back, suddenly he lost his footing. And he was held up temporarily by the other four because each had a kind of a toehold that they had cut in the ice. But the last man, he wasn't able to recover quickly and but wasn't t- it didn't take long for the, for the next man in the, in, the, in, in the line to slip himself. And now it was two men weighing them down. And it didn't take long for those two to then pull down the next two above them. And it appeared for an instant as these four men lay dangling that the entire group was going to be lost to this mountain. But the first man, 
The first man all the way at the top stood his ground because he had driven a spike deep into the ice. Each of the other men slipped, but because that first guide held his ground, all the men beneath him were eventually able to regain their footing. F.B. Meyer says, I am like one of those men who slipped, but thank God I am bound in living partnership to Christ. Because he stands, I will never perish. You will fail. That's inevitable. And for a time, perhaps for an instant, or perhaps for several years, it's going to look like all hope is lost. You will face the consequences of your failure, and it's going to look like you're headed down the mountain. But there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He's got you. Of course, it's, it's even better than that, though, right? Because Jesus isn't just our Savior. He's our Lord, too. Jesus isn't just interested in helping people stay alive. He's interested in getting to the top of the mountain. He'll stop at nothing to get us to the top of the mountain together with him. In Christ, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the people that he's calling us to be and do the work that he's calling us to do for the sake of this world that he is in the process of reconciling back to himself. As we saw last week, we, we the church, were ministers of reconciliation. We're ministers of peace. We're called to embody peace for this world. We're ministers of the gospel. We are ambassadors of Christ. That's a tough mountain to climb. And we will experience failure. But he's got us. Because now there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We trip. We fall. It looks like all hope is lost. But he has got us. Jesus has every intention on climbing the mountain. And if we're tethered to him, our call is to regain our footing when we fail and then trust and then climb. See, I think that's what the rest of Romans 8 is all about. Paul tells us that in Christ, the Holy Spirit has given us a new core to live out of. A new core in order to fulfill the, future, the Father's plans for cosmic reconciliation. God's life-giving spirit has replaced sin as the indwelling power within his people. In Christ, we are, um, we're co-witnesses, right? We get to take Christ's message out to the world. We're co-heirs. We're adopted as sons and daughters of the one true king into the family of God. We're co-sufferers following Jesus' lead of the cross to love others with humility and sacrificial love, thinking of others more importantly than we think of ourselves. And then we're also, because of that, we're also co-glorified along with Christ. All of this is pointed towards the anticipatory hope that we have in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are free to live out God's future in the here and now. I mean, that's what Easter's all about, Charlie Brown. In Christ, we are free to live out God's future in the here and now. We may slip. We may slip. But in Christ, we have the power to get back up. For the past five years, I've had the privilege of uh, calling Matt Koch my friend. 
This man is um, someone who, if you get to hear his story, he's someone who has slipped several times. He's someone who has made the mistake and felt the consequences of his actions. But I am so proud to know him. I'm so proud to call him my friend because he is also a man who knows that in Christ there is no condemnation. In Christ, when he slips, he can get back up and he can declare to his church family, he can declare to the world, he can declare to those who are in, um, in recovery along with him, he can declare that there is life in Christ. He can declare that there is no condemnation. He can declare that in Christ, he can live out the mission of life. And I think that that's an image. That's an image so, so powerful for, for me, especially as a pastor, as I think about all of us, as I think about this community that we're called to be, because each one of us falls down the mountain. Each one of us loses our footing. Each one of us has these moments where we feel like all hope is lost. But we have to remember, we have to remind each other, we have a responsibility to remind each other that there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Failure is inevitable. But what's more inevitable, <laughs> I don't know, that's the right way to put it, is the lordship of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ, and the commitment that together with Christ, following his lead, tethered to him, we are going to get to the top of the mountain. We're going to accomplish the work that Jesus has asked us to do. That, that, that mission, that great commission that we saw in last week in, in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded because I'm going to be with you to the end of the age in Christ, because he's driven that stake in the ground. There's no condemnation, and it's even better than that. We're going to get to the top of the mountain. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness um, to this community. I thank you for the, the work that you've done in and through us over the past 18 years. Uh, and I pray for the next 18, for the years in, this in, in the future, uh, as you call us to, to be for Catonsville, for Baltimore, beyond and beyond. Father, in you we have every responsibility, every mission, every call to be your people and to believe that we're going to get to the top of the mountain in you. By your lead, by following your path, by following in your footsteps, footsteps, by following in the, in the footsteps and, and following the, the Holy Spirit breadcrumbs of, of love, joy, and peace, of patience and, and kindness and goodness, gentleness and faithfulness. When, when we live out that way, when we live out that path, that's how we know we're, we're, we're making our way. That's how we know that we've got our footing is when the fruit of, of, of the Spirit in our lives bears, bears that kind of fruit. Father, we just give everything to you and we trust in that truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Give us the hope, Father. Help us to have the strength in order to get back up and keep moving forward. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen.